Well, as I've already mentioned, today is Transfiguration Sunday, um, a Sunday when a lot of churches around the world will pause and recall the story of Jesus being transfigured or revealed, his true identity revealed in the midst of, of his earthly ministry. And the story occurs in all three synoptic gospels, it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which highlights, I think, the importance of our uh, understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to trust and try and obey him, try to follow him. And this evening, we're going to take a fresh look at this story, which we've probably heard lots of times if you've been around church. And if not, if you're a guest and I haven't heard the story, well, it's, it's a good one. Uh, but I hope, to, I hope as we work through it, just to highlight some of the details that, uh, that stand out, that are significant, to, to help us understand the passage a little bit more. But then I want to see once we kind of get that understanding, I want to see how it fits in the larger gospel story and, and, and to kind of flesh that out for us as we think about who Jesus is. So we're going to dive into the text itself. I'm going to start off with Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, and then pause and, and talk about it a little bit. So it goes like this. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he brought them up on a high mountain by himself, by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah for he didn't know what to say. They were terrified. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Now Jesus had been speaking with crowds of people uh, that, pa- that passage actually that Patrick just read for the scripture reading uh, w- was what directly came before this transfiguration story. So he's with crowds of people and he's talking with them. But now there's a shift in, in Mark chapter nine. There's a, 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 a shift in setting. And this is what happens is, is that he now moves away from the crowds. And we get this interesting time marker um, it says that it was six days, six days after he was with the crowds. And that might not seem very significant to you. Like, so what? It's just a detail, six days. But there's this New Testament scholar, Joel Marcus, who points out that Mark, in Mark's gospel, his time markers everywhere else in his gospel are always vague. Like, he'll say, in those days or in that day. Like, you never really know what day it is because Mark is just saying stuff like, on that day or in that time or, or whatever it was. But here he uses six days, an exact amount of time. And when Mark switches things up like that as a narrator, it's a, it's a cue for us to pay attention. That's probably a significant detail. So we're going to keep that in mind as we keep going with the passage. So anyway, they head up on this mountain, probably Mount Hermon, and, and Jesus was transfigured before them, says the text. And the Greek verb there is metamorphe at which that's where we get our English word metamorphosis, right? You've heard that word. And, and so for a moment in time, 
Jesus morphed from his regular appearance to a a shining radiance that's often used to describe like angelic beings in the Old Testament, or it's used to describe the risen and reigning Jesus like in books like Revelation in in the future after after this story. The whole scene sort of reminds me, uh, nerd hat here, of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, where readers of Tolkien know that Gandalf is is not just a mere human, he's an Istari, um, and and he's sent to Middle-earth to aid and counsel the free peoples of the world in their stand against evil. And Gandalf was usually one to kind of blend in with the, with the, with the general population. He was a, a blue-collar wizard, if you will. He would just hang out with everybody. Uh, he sought to understand people more than be glorified for his own sake. But from time to time, when the need arose, Gandalf could transfigure himself. Not to become something he wasn't, but to reveal who he actually was under the ragged garments. To reveal his hidden true self. In this scene, Jesus is glowing with his own power, with his own radiance. And while all of this is going on, who should appear but Elijah and Moses, two great prophets from the Hebrew scriptures who had not been seen on earth for well over a thousand years. That's strange. I can't even imagine what Peter and James of John what, what, must have been, what were they thinking? We know from the text that they were terrified, but like what is going on in their minds as they witness this otherworldly scene? And that's, that's actually what this is. This is sort of an otherworldly scene because in ancient cosmology, in ancient thinking, mountaintops were places of great spiritual significance. Pagan cultures would often put altars and shrines to their gods and goddesses on mountaintops. Or you might remember the Tower of Babel story where humans tried to build this thing up higher because they believed that the higher you got, the closer, the thinner was the veil between earth and heaven. The God of the Bible is able to be in all places at once, but he's also so gracious that he meets human beings where we are. And since so many people in biblical times thought that mountaintops were particularly sacred, God would often choose to meet people there, like he met Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. Now, you remember that time marker? Mark tells us that six days later, Jesus took these three disciples up to the mountaintop and all of this stuff goes down. Well, in Exodus 24, 16, God is with Moses six days on Mount Sinai. Then a cloud representing God's holy and protective presence overshadows them, just like in this story. In Mark 9, we have a reference to six days, just like Moses. We have Jesus on a mountaintop like Moses. When Moses came down from the mountaintop in the Exodus story, after being in God's presence, he glowed with God's radiance so much that the people were like, dude, we can't look at you You're too holy, we can tell you've been with God. Will you wear a veil or something so we don't freak out around you? And in this story, Jesus isn't glowing because he's close to God, he's glowing because he is divine. It's from his own power, from the core of who he is. The transfiguration story reveals to us a little bit of who Jesus is. Jesus is with Elijah and Moses, these two great prophets who 
who were supposed to come and the Old Testament says that they were supposed to point the way when the Messiah was going to come, when the day of the Lord was going to come. But Jesus is shown to be superior to them. He is the Lord of the day of the Lord. He's the Lord that the day of the Lord was expecting or talking about. And then this cloud appears. The presence of the Father, it's a voice that affirms Jesus's identity. Just like in Mark chapter one, when Jesus is baptized, we hear that voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. And in the transfiguration story, there's an added phrase, listen to him. Peter, James, and John are all watching this. They're listening to Jesus, talking to Elijah and Moses. And Peter blurts out, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, why would Peter say this? First of all, we have to appreciate that there were some assumptions that first century Jews had that we just don't think about. Um, One of those assumptions was the popular belief that the kingdom of God might manifest itself on a mountaintop. That's something we don't think about. That's something that's not necessarily in scripture either. It was just a popular thought for first century Jews that the kingdom of God might manifest itself on a mountaintop. Now, again, our own context betrays us, right? I, I love to ski like I know some of you do. And when I think of a mountaintop, I think of peaks, thousands of feet in the air, high above the Alpine where conditions are beautiful, yes, but they are harsh, right? Like mountains, uh, mountaintops of the Cascade Mountains and the Rocky Mountains, they're gorgeous to look at, but they're deadly to stay on for very long. They're great places to visit if you have the right gear, but nobody's living on the mountaintop. It would be a horrible, cold, barren existence, right? Um, but mountains in, in Palestine were places where clouds would come up and, and, and they would drop their rain, their life-giving rains in this arid land, lush streams of water flowing from the sides of these mountains, glorious greenery, forests. So that's why they have this image of almost like an Eden uh, for their mountains, right? A second reason Peter might be thinking about setting up a tent city is that in ancient imaginations, mountains were the likeliest spot for a return of Eden or paradise. One Jewish writing, it's not in the Bible, but it's a a Jewish devotional writing, it's called First Enoch. And there's a passage in First Enoch in the 39th chapter where the writer sees a heavenly vision And he sees angels resting in a place that's holy. And he saw all the righteous and the elect who are radiant like fire. And while looking at this heavenly scene where heaven seems to meet earth, the author writes, I desired to dwell and all my spirit longed for that place to stay there, to set up shop to, it literally says abode. It's kind of, you know, ancient, old old English, like, but He sees this scene on a mountaintop and he longs to set up shop there. Basically, he's witnessing a slice of heaven and he doesn't want to leave. He wants to set up a shelter there and remain in that glory moment. Like who wouldn't want that? 
Now, Peter's doing something similar, I think, in Mark chapter 9. He's on a mountaintop, the perfect setting for an epiphany of God, full of Eden vibes and heavenly imagery. And now Jesus is glowing and talking to two guys who are famous Old Testament prophets who should have been dead, right? And what's interesting is that Elijah, the Bible says he didn't die. The Bible says that God took him up, kind of like that story in Enoch. And Moses like there's conflicting stories because in one part in like in the Old Testament it says that they buried Moses's bones, but popular Jewish teaching was that Moses also like Elijah was taking up. So there's a lot of popular thought at this time that these two men were sort of like, not quite like Elvis alive on some Caribbean island, but like, like in heaven alive, like never in the ground, like taken up with God. And so they're still around and here they are. This must be a thin place where heaven is meeting earth. And so Peter's like, this is amazing. We've arrived at the pinnacle. Let's, let's live here. What Peter doesn't yet understand is that glory is not just given. It's earned through struggle and commitment, suffering. Peter, James, and John have seen the world with the curtain pulled back. But life, and you know this to be true from experience, life isn't lived on pinnacle mountaintop experiences. Had Jesus allowed them to stay on the mountain in glory, the rest of the world, including you and I, would have suffered for it. If Jesus had stayed who could have possibly done the work of redeeming the world to give their life for the salvation of all things? The narrative of the American dream, which is now exported all over the world through internet, music, and film, is this false dream, really, of competition in which the elites get their slice of heaven on earth for themselves. For ourselves, let's face it, we've drank the Kool-Aid in a lot of ways. But the way of Jesus is nothing short of reconciliation for the whole of creation. And so the story continues. It doesn't end on the mountaintop pinnacle experience. And it continues in verse nine. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Why we're talking about it now on the other side of the resurrection. They seized upon that statement discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him saying, what is it that the scribes say or why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first before Messiah, before the day of the Lord? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things, and yet how is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus continues, he says, I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Of course, he's speaking of John the Baptist, who by this point in the Gospel of Mark has been beheaded. I'll just, if you just want to do a little bit of homework or refresh your memory, if you go back to chapter one and it describes John the Baptist, think of how gospel writers often use vague language. 
You and I, we don't even know what Jesus looked like. It's ne- we know he shone one time on the top of a mountain. We don't know what color his hair was, what color his eyes were, what kind of robe he looked. We don't know anything. We know more about what John the Baptist wore than Jesus because in Mark chapter one, it says that he wore camel's hair and he had a thick leather belt. And do you know why that is? Because that's exactly how Elijah's described in the Old Testament. Several years ago, Disney Studios released a television series called The Mandalorian, which I just love geeking out on you. Um, it's, it's a story from the greater Star Wars universe. And if you don't know or care about Star Wars, think of The Mandalorian as like a, uh, I like to think of it as a space Western. It's really just a Western with like high-tech stuff. Um, total nerd, right? But anyway, uh, so, so it's a space Western, and, and the main character is this dude named Din Djarin, and he's a bounty hunter, sounds kind of like a Clint Eastwood Western or something like that. Um, he's a bounty hunter, and he's part of this group of, of, of highly trained, disciplined uh, individuals called the Mandalorians. And this group he belongs to, they're not, um, they're not rooted in an ethnic, ethnic identity. The original ones are, their origins come from this planet called Mandalore. I know I'm going deep in the weeds here, but like like most of them who make up the ranks of the Mandalorians, like this guy Din Djarin, um, they were people who had lost their parents at a young age. And they were sort of brought into the community of the Mandalorians. And what I love about this show is that they're not called orphans. They're called foundlings. Small nuance, right? But that is just so beautiful. I think it's very Christian. Um, we are foundlings brought into the family of God. Anyway, that's a whole other sermon. I'll preach on the Mandalorian sometime. But um, anyway, uh, like the main characters in typical Westerns, Din Djarin is sort of like withdrawn. He's super focused on his mission. Um, he's deadly with all sorts of kinds of combat. And he's one of the most successful bounty hunters in the galaxy uh, because he lives by the code of the Mandalorians. He probably wouldn't be a good date, right? Like he doesn't have time for... <laughs> For romance, he doesn't have time for anything else because he's focused on the mission and, and he trains hard, he travels light, he doesn't involve himself in overindulgence and he doesn't care about the opinions of other people. Most of all, he lives with the integrity of the code called the way. He'll often say, this is the way. There's something to be admired about the way that Din Djarin lives. His reputation as the most successful or feared bounty hunter precedes him, and he always gets the job done right, but his successes are not the main part of the story. He's successful because of the small decisions that he makes every day with integrity, because of the hard decisions he makes to do the next right thing the right way. He's successful because he follows the way. For Peter, possibly for us, the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop seems like the pinnacle of the story. They had arrived in this heavenly scene with Jesus' awesomeness revealed, but the transfiguration story in the Gospel of Mark, it's sandwiched between stories of suffering and failure. This section of Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, it's known by, by biblical scholars as the way section. The way section. At the end of chapter eight, which we just heard Patrick read, um, we have Jesus predicting his own suffering 
and betrayal and death. This is the way. From this point on, Jesus is gonna be marching toward Jerusalem, toward his fate. This is the way, that's the way he is aimed. The way of Jesus may end in glory and salvation, but it involves sacrifice and suffering. That's the way. So from this point on, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is making his way toward the cross. And what's fascinating to me is the parallelism between the story in Mark 9, which is the transfiguration story, and the story in Mark 15, which is the crucifixion story. Just listen to some of these parallels. The human witnesses at the transfiguration express fear. The human witnesses at the crucifixion express fear. There was an extraordinary light associated with the transfiguration, and at the, at the crucifixion, there is a supernatural, extraordinary darkness that falls in the middle of the daytime. Jesus' clothes are luminous with heavenly brightness at the transfiguration, revealing his identity as Messiah and Son of God. Jesus' clothes at the crucifixion are torn from his body. A sign mockingly is placed over his head, the King of the Jews. At the transfiguration, two Old Testament prophets are keeping Jesus company, quite honorable company. On the cross, Jesus is kept company by two mocking criminals. At the transfiguration, Peter says, it's good for us to be here. At the cross, or actually at the arrest, Peter denies he even knows Jesus three times. At the transfiguration, God the Father's voice expresses divine approval of Jesus, his beloved son, and at the crucifixion, God is apparently silent while Jesus suffers. After 2,000 years after these events, a group of followers of the way, that was the original name of the Christian church, by the way, before they were ever called Christians, Christians were known as the way. After 2,000 years, Followers of the way have gathered on a Super Bowl Sunday, singing praises, glorifying Jesus, hearing his word proclaimed, giving of our time and finances, and gathering around a communion table to meet the risen and reigning and glorified Jesus. Why do we do this? Why have billions done this for nearly two millennia? Why is this movement, the way, growing like wildfire in some of the most oppressive political regimes in the world, China, Iran, parts of Africa, exploding with converts to Christianity? Why has Jesus captured many of our hearts in 21st century Bellingham? It's not because he's famous or because he's a rock star or because he's successful. If the story of Jesus ended with him glowing on a mountaintop in Mark chapter 9, my hunch is that we wouldn't be here talking about it right now. There would be no Christianity. There would be no movement called the way. Let me say this as clearly as possible. I think this is important. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus reveals his divinity to his disciples, but not his glory not his glory. His glory, the glory of God, doesn't take place on the mountaintop. It takes place on top of a wooden cross in Golgotha, a place nicknamed Skull Hill. I think that Jesus redefines what glory actually is. 
The glory of humans and the gods we tend to create and the mythologies we create, ancient and modern, they produce these, these gods and goddesses of pride, gods and goddesses of pure transcendence that cannot be touched, that cannot be hurt. They're disconnected from real life. But the glory of God is defined as his sacrificial love for us. The divine one of the transfiguration shows his glory in the crucified one on Good Friday. They're one and the same, the creator and the crucified one. It's only because of the cross, only because of the way of Jesus, a way that involves sacrifice and love and reconciliation. In the world, there's suffering. I don't need to tell you that. But because of Jesus, at least two things are true. First, through faith in Jesus, his suffering on the cross, his death and resurrection covers you. You can be forgiven, redeemed, reconciled to God, receive eternal life. Jesus won our salvation by suffering for us. That's why we give him glory. That's why we give him glory. Second thing is that the promise of new creation in Christ means that the suffering and the loss and the failure and the grief that we now experience, that we now endure, will somehow be redeemed. Somehow those loose ends of our stories that we wish we could have back or wish we could retell, somehow he weaves those into something more beautiful and awesome than we could ever imagine. And that is why through Christ, we can have genuine hope in an actual future of beauty and goodness. As we prepare now to meet with Jesus through communion, I wanna close this preaching moment with a time of silence to both come to Jesus honestly with our need for forgiveness and come to him with our longing to be made new.